from St. Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised and we shall be changed. In the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Well, good morning. There's an old Latin expression, semper gumby, always flexible. It's not true, I made that up. But it does work in church circles, you know why? Because if you heard on the way in, something was wrong with my mic, and so Father Gritter and I, in a very uh, quiet way, he removed his mic, and I went in there and put, we swapped him out. Again, semper gumby, always flexible. Thank you, Father, for reading that gospel without a mic. Um, anyway, we're not going to talk about Gumby today, but we are going to talk about anthropology, an inter interesting fact that you may not know, and it's this, that every human culture, every human culture in history that we have record, written record of, every human culture throughout all human history has believed that we are supposed to live forever. All humanity believes that it's some sort of an afterlife of some variety. Now, the diff there's a lot of differences, as you might guess. Uh, for example, the Egyptians, when you were dead, they would wrap you up in a cloth, and then they would bury you along with some, you know, money and uh, uh, water, maybe a slave, your favorite cat, whatever. And that was there to, to usher you into the next life. Or, if you were a Greek, the Greeks believed in Hades, this sort of shadowy underworld where when you died, your spirit was carted across the Styx River by, the, uh, the, by Sharon, this uh, spiritual guide, and you dwelled in Hades, Gehenna, forever and ever in some shady existence. Then there were the Vikings. The Vikings. The Vikings have Valhalla. And you got to say it like that, Valhalla, where brave Viking souls, after they had pillaged and plundered and raped, would in their minds, if they were lucky, hopefully die by the edge of the sword in battle and go to Valhalla and spend eternity in Valhalla, which is essentially a great big frat party, <laughs> drinking and football games, and hanging out with women, and you get the idea, right? <laughs> the point is that, uh, the point I want you to see here is that it is, it is part of the human condition that every human culture, every human being, even in this room, even people that don't go to church and say they're not religious, nonsense. Everybody believes in some sort of afterlife. So here's the question I want you to consider. You ready? Why? Why is it the, hum the universal human expectation of an afterlife? Where, where does that come from exactly? I I'll tell you where it can't come from. People say, evolution, we evolved that way. Well, evolution is a bad theory, and it has very little evidence. But, but evolution, even if you want to come at it from an evolutionary perspective, take God out of the picture, for example, uh, evolution preaches exactly the opposite. Evolution says survival of the fittest, right? In other words, you don't, you don't live for an afterlife at all. If you are an atheist, you live for the now. And your whole purpose in life is to spread your progeny as far and wide as possible without restriction. Survival of the fittest. And if you don't believe me, 
go ahead and dust off a copy of a 19th century philosopher named Friedrich Nietzsche. Nietzsche was one of, is to me one of the most terrifying and intellectually honest atheists there are. Because what he said is, look, if there's no afterlife, then life is all about the will to power. You don't worry about an afterlife as an atheist. You live for the now, and you use power and force and brutality to expand your gene pool. Not, ex not surprisingly, the Third Reich made great use of Friedrich Nietzsche, and he's still very popular even today. So evolution, even if it were true, and I would say scientifically, it has very little data to support it, Evolution does not explain the universal human expectation of an afterlife. And here's my point. Simply this. Every human culture believes that we should live forever. That's the operative word, should. I'll tell you why in a second. So where does this idea that we should live forever, where does it come from? You know, we've got a dog at home. His name is Max, but we call him Moppy because he's hairy and he's a mess. Um, you know, he doesn't care if he, Moppy doesn't care if he lives forever. He could care less. I doubt if Moppy ever has an existential thought that goes through his tiny little doggy brain. He does love baby carrots. He loves baby carrots. But he doesn't care if he lives forever. So why is it that humans, across all cultures and all times and all people, we believe that we should live forever. Why is that when nobody ever has? Here's another one, another zinger, that all human souls, all human cultures across time and space have not just an expectation that they should live forever, but they also believe that the world should be fair. And I'll prove it to you. Any moms or dads here? Anybody here ever been around a little kid when they become, when they can talk, or three or four, whatever it is, and the first thing they learn is you take something from them, or Johnny kicks them in the playground, or you tell them they can't have, you know, three scoops of ice cream, they say, but Dad, that's not fair. Justice is a universal human expectation, even little kids believe that the world should be fair. Again, where does that come from? Why in the world would anybody believe the world should be fair? Because it, not, it isn't. We certainly didn't learn that experientially. In fact, quite the opposite is true. Turn on the evening news and watch what's going on in Venezuela. Life is anything but fair. If anything, life is suffering. Life is hard. Nobody gets a fair shake, which comes back to the question, and it's this. Why, in God's name, do human beings believe that, the world, that we should live forever and that, the, and that the world should be fair? Should. I'm going to tell you why. The answer to that question actually lies in the question itself. Don't lose me. <laughs> I'm going to get a little heady on you for a second, but stay with me. The answer to the question, why should the world be fair, actually the answer resides in the question. Here's what I mean. The minute we say should, we are actually comparing our situation, listen, to an ideal. 
The minute you say should, you are comparing your current circumstances to an ideal. When we say that we die, but we should live forever, or the world is unfair, but it should be just, anytime you make a comparison asserting that something should be X, you are comparing your present circumstances to a standard. If you say, if some, your wife says to you, you know, you, ought to lo- you should lose 10 pounds, right? She's comparing you to a standard. And it's a standard, incidentally, which you don't satisfy. Do you see my point? And this actually answers the question. Because human beings believe that the world should be fair, that we should live forever. It's kind of almost like, kind of almost like this. Humanity has a common standard, a common shared memory of the way the world should be. Where people live forever. Well, the world is, in fact, fair. It's almost like all, not say almost, it is. All human cultures across space and time, all people that live even now believe that the world should be fair, that, that, that we should live forever. We all appeal to a common standard, a common memory of a place where that was true. Let me ask you a question. What if that place was real? Guess what? It is. The Bible calls this standard, against which we compare our entire existence, the Bible calls this place Eden, the Garden of Eden. Eden means pleasure. The Garden of Joy. Where people did, in fact, live forever. Supposed to. Where the world was, in fact, fair. The reason we have a common memory of that and use Eden as our standard is because, friends, you were made for it and so was I. You were made for the world different from the world in which you and I inhabit. We were made for Eden, you see. You were made for a world, but not this one. And by virtue of your sin and mine and all humanity, we were, as you know, in Genesis chapter 2, cast out of Eden, and now we live in this world, which is broken and fallen, where things fall apart, where uh, somebody once said life is nasty, brutish, and short where things, quite frankly, are not the way that you and I know they're supposed to be. But we remember it, don't we? We actually long for it. We expect it, Eden. We remember the way it should be. All human beings have this memory, this collective memory of Eden. We yearn for it. We crave it. We demand it. Life is not, but Dad, that's not fair. Eden, friends, is the standard against which you and I and all humanity compare this world. And see, here's the thing. When Jesus died on the cross, he actually paid your fare, paid your ticket back to Eden. He pays your way, and he shows us how you get back in. Last week, I talked about the evidence for the resurrection, that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, and that when he returns, he will reestablish a real physical heaven, a real Eden. And then today, Paul elaborates on that fact. Listen to what he says. This is profound. You ready? 1 Corinthians chapter 51 and 52. 
Paul says, even though we are dead, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all, listen, be changed. In the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, <laughs> for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised, and we shall be changed. When Christ returns, he's, Paul says, the trumpet will sound. A trumpet is in, in, the, in the Bible a symbol of the arrival of a king, kind of like when Jesus is born outside in the city of Bethlehem. Hark the herald angels. They are, arrived, they are announcing the birth of the king in a barn, and then Christ, Paul is saying they will reannounce his return when he comes again to raise the living, to raise the dead. Friends, when Christ returns, he will reestablish Eden. The dead will be resurrected into a real physical place where there be no more suffering and no more death, where we'll, we'll live forever and life will be just. My grandfather, Fred Ramin, who's now dead, I told him this once, and he said to me, and I quote, well, that sure is damn hard to believe. And I said, well, Grandpa, that's fine. I, it may be hard to believe, and frankly it is, but I said to him, does Jesus lie? He said, what do you mean? I said, well, just answer the question, man. Does Jesus lie? No, he doesn't. Well, then, you've got to believe what he says. As hard as it is to believe that Christ, when he returns, the dead will be raised, that is what he says. Take it or leave it. But if you believe that that's true, and I do, and I didn't always, that the world will be the way it should be, that the ideal and the real will be one, man, that changes absolutely everything. Because what that means, you see, is that even though this life is suffering, and it is, it is suffering, listen, with an end goal in sight. And that changes how you live now. I'm going to give you an example. Anybody here in this room have an exercise regimen? I'm sure you do. A lot of you do. I turned 50 back in December, as you know, and uh, I'd been exercising for, gosh, 20 years, and I decided when I turned 50 I was going to really crank it up, which I have. I decided to crank it up, to work harder in my exercise routine. And I'll be honest with you, man, exercise is suffering, <laughs> right? It's hard work. But it's hard work with a goal in mind. This life is kind of like that, I submit to you. This life is a training program of loving, of doing things that Jesus says we should do, of loving our enemies, or at least trying to, or at least knowing that we should of praying for those who persecute you, or at least trying to, of at least knowing that life is simply, life is simply like exercise. It's a regimen which requires us to become more and more like Jesus and less and less like ourselves. Because Jesus' return, friends, is not that far out. It is not that far away. Listen, I will say this to you. You will meet Jesus in your lifetime, period. You will meet Jesus in your lifetime. It is not a matter of if, but when. In fact, just yesterday, I was at the hospice house. I was called over there uh, to go visit somebody, a member of the parish. He's a new member, newer member, 52-year-old uh, man, not much older than me, member of this parish. He was there with his significant other and his two daughters, from a prior marriage, they were all there, and there he was as I gave, went to give him last rites, dying of brain cancer. And as I was ministering to him and his family, I looked around and I thought to myself, my God, this, this could be me, and someday it will be. 
And if someday it will be you too. So here's the question. Are you ready? And I don't mean that in a sense of, of dread, actually. On the contrary. I don't mean that in a sense of dread, but in a sense of hope. Do you wait? Do you long for Do you expect the kingdom of God? Do you wait for and long for the kingdom of God with Jesus at its center? A real physical existence, paradise, where you will live forever. You know, if you lived your life with this in mind, with this hope, you would have confidence, you would be fearless, you would be hopeful. Because Christian hope is not about something you would really like to happen but might not. Like I would really like Penn State to have won all season in football, but they didn't. No. Christian hope is not about something you hope will occur but might not. Christian hope is knowing something that will occur but has not yet. Christian hope is about reminding ourselves that Christ will return and that it is the assurance of things we don't see but are still true. Hope is the absolute conviction that Jesus what Jesus tells us is true, that the world is hard, that life is short, the time on this earth is precious. But at the same time, so what? <laughs> this is all a pregame. This is all just a warm-up. This life is a prelude to the real life with Jesus when he will return with power and great glory and invite you into Eden, the Eden you long for, the Eden you hope for, the Eden that causes all the shoulds in your life. So friends, let me just challenge you this morning. Do a gut check on your priorities. Keep your eye on that goal. The victory is in sight. Nothing can stop you. And that, my friends, is a life lived in hope. Shall we pray? Father, we, we know, all humanity knows, that we were created for something better. Help us to see clearly that this world is broken, that we are fallen, but the battle is already won. Give us hope, give us courage for the facing of the struggles of this life, confident and waiting for the restored Eden, which Jesus promises to us. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to our Trinity Episcopal Church podcast. To find out more about the work God is doing through Trinity, visit us online at trinitybureau.org and follow us on Facebook. Facebook.